In the last two um, discussions about the New Covenant as revealed in the Old Testament scriptures, we talked about uh, the New Covenant as Isaiah prophesies concerning it and as uh, Jeremiah prophesies concerning it. And today we come to the third of the three major prophets, Ezekiel. And we're going to look at three passages in the prophecy of Ezekiel. The first is chapter 16, which is uh, much more about the Old Covenant than the New, but does mention the New Covenant at the end of the chapter. Then we're also going to look at chapter 34, verses 11 to 31, and chapter 37, verses 15 to 28. Ezekiel's perspective is somewhat different from the perspectives of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah presents this idea of the new covenant, especially in connection with the idea of the servant of the Lord and the calling of the Gentiles. This servant of the Lord is the covenant of the Lord with the Gentiles. And Jeremiah emphasizes especially the idea idea that the old covenant will be replaced with something better. Not according to the covenant that I made with them in the days of Sinai, but uh, a new covenant, Jeremiah says in chapter 31. Now Ezekiel does two things, I think, especially. First of all, in chapter 16, he takes the metaphor that Isaiah uses in chapter 54, and he uh, expands on that metaphor at great length. The metaphor of a husband and his wife. And then in chapters 34 and 37, he uses especially the metaphor of the shepherd and his sheep. So let's begin with chapter 16 of this um, prophecy of Ezekiel. The purpose for which God called Ezekiel to speak this prophecy to Israel is given to us in verse 2 of the chapter. Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. God wants Ezekiel to talk to Israel about how great her sins are. And Ezekiel does this under the metaphor of God making Israel his bride. And let's trace the detailed history of God's dealings with his bride in this uh, chapter. First of all, in verses uh, 1 to 5 of the chapter, uh, Ezekiel talks about the childhood of the bride. He says to her, first of all, that she uh, came from the land of Canaan. Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. And your parents, he says, were an Amorite and a Hittite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Now those are not complementary descriptions of the birth of this female child. When Ezekiel says that her nativity was from the land of Canaan, he's not talking about her physical descent. 
He's talking about her spiritual descent. And the same is true when he says, your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. You were born of those nations uh, of whom God said to Israel, you must destroy them utterly. You were born of those nations who have committed abominable things in the land which God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and which God destroyed because of their sins. So her spiritual heritage then is a, um, an evil heritage. The second thing that Ezekiel says, and that's in verses 4 and 5, is that when this female child was born, no one uh, took pity on her. No one cleaned her up from the filth of her birth. No one washed the blood off from her. No one cut her navel cord. No one uh, rubbed her with salt or wrapped her with swaddling clothes. No one pitied her, in fact. They simply took her and threw her out into a field in the wilderness where she surely would have perished in her uncleanness and her, uh, the filth of her birth. So this female child was an undesired child of evil parentage. That's the, the point that uh, Ezekiel makes in the first five verses. There was nothing in this child to make her desirable as the wife of God. But God came by while she was lying there in her blood in the field. And you find this in verses 6 to 14. And he gave to this child life. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. He made her thrive. And as she grew and matured, she became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but, he says, you were naked and bare. And so, when he passed by her again, he clothed her. He spread his wing over her, covered her nakedness, and entered into a covenant with her by which she became his bride. Verse 8, yes, I swore an oath to you, and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. And in the context of this covenant that he made with her, he washed her with water. That is, he uh, cleansed her, he purified her of her sins. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. He gave to her beautiful clothing and jewelry and rich food, and he exalted her, in fact, to royal status. I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. So that's what we read in verses 6 to 14. God made a covenant with this female uh, whom he found in her blood in the wilderness. And he took care of her. 
He caused her to grow. He clothed her. He washed her. He anointed her with oil. He made her his wife, exalting her to royal status, so that her fame went out among the nations. Because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. But then, in verses 15 to 26, the prophet turns his attention to the abominations which God's wife had committed. And he says four things about these abominations. First of all, she used the gifts her husband had given her to make sacrifices to idols. She did not worship her God, but she worshipped idols. And not only did she not worship her God, but she took the gifts that belonged to her God and gave them instead to other gods. Secondly, she sacrificed his children to idols. Look at that in verses 20 to 22. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children and offered them up to them by causing them to pass through the fire? And in all your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, struggling in your blood. The church has been called the mother of believers. And this is one of the passages in the scriptures that justify that description. God begets his children upon his church, upon his people. And here we find Israel taking God's children, whom she bore to him, and sacrificing those children to the idols of the nations around, to Molech and Chemosh and so on. Thirdly, the prophet says, you built shrines and high places everywhere, throughout your cities and throughout your streets. And finally, you committed harlotry. First of all, you committed harlotry with the Egyptians, and then In verses 28 to 34, you committed harlotry with the Assyrians and the Chaldeans. That is, she was an unfaithful wife. She committed adultery, not just with one, but with many. So she was a very wicked and unfaithful wife to her God. Now God then pronounces judgment on this wicked wife. That's really the point of this chapter. He pronounces judgment. Look at it first in verse 27. Behold, therefore I stretched out my hand against you, diminished your allotment, and gave you up to the will of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. God says, Even the Philistines, that wicked nation, were ashamed of the lewd behavior which you committed, and I gave you up to them. And then, also, later in the chapter, verses 35 to 41, he pronounces further judgment. Now then, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, 
God, because your filthiness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your harlotry with all your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children which you gave to them, surely I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them from all around against you and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who break wedlock or shed blood are judged. I will bring, bring blood upon you in fury and in jealousy. So God pronounces judgment on his wicked wife. <clears throat> That's the context in which this prophecy is being spoken. But that's not the full intent of what God has given to Ezekiel to speak to his people. Notice first what he says in verses 42 and 43. After speaking of all the judgments he will bring on them, he continues, So I will lay to rest my fury toward you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be quiet and be angry no more. And then in verse 43, Because you did not remember the days of your youth, but agitated me with all these things, surely I will also recompense your deeds on your own head, says the Lord God, and you shall not commit lewdness in addition to all your abominations. So what God says is, I'm going to judge you, and my judgments are going to be severe. They are going to be terrible. But the purpose of these judgments will not be your destruction. The purpose of these judgments will be that you cease to commit lewdness and all these other abominations. And when I have sanctified you in that way, then my fury will rest and my jealousy depart. I will be quiet and be angry no more. That's marvelous, wholly unexpected, and wholly undeserved grace. But he also continues in verses 44 to 59 to speak further condemnation. And the point that he makes, especially in verses 44 to 59, is that he compares Israel to both Sodom and Samaria. And he says, you were worse than both. You, the people of the southern kingdom, the tribe of Judah, whom I graced with my king and my presence, you were worse than the northern kingdom, Samaria, and you were worse than Sodom, that city I destroyed with fire and brimstone because of its wickedness. But it's in the context then of that abhorrent and abominable sin that God shows his grace. He says in verse 59, to conclude all her, all the description of her wickedness, for thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, 
who have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. They had broken his covenant. They had despised his oath and their own oath to him in return to his oath. And God says, I will deal with you as you have done to me. I also will break my covenant. But, verse 60, immediately seems to contradict this. And in a very real sense, uh, verse 59 does not mean that God will break his covenant, that he will bring it to an end. But he's going to renew and enhance that covenant to make it better. He's talking here in verse 60 then about the new covenant. Nevertheless, he says, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. So he's going to renew that old covenant. He's going to make that new, that old covenant an everlasting covenant, which will never again be broken by himself or by them. Ultimately, it will be even that they will no longer break that covenant. Notice how he continues. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed. So Judah is going to remember her wickedness and she is going to be ashamed of her wickedness. That's the first promise of this new covenant. The second promise is that he will give to Judah her sisters, Samaria and Sodom, as daughters. You will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your older and your younger sisters. And you can go back in the chapter and find that those sisters are Samaria and Sodom, for I will give them to you for daughters, but not because of my covenant with you. That is not because of the old covenant that I made with you in the first place. They will not become your daughters. But those sisters, wicked sisters, Samaria and Sodom, will be given to the bride of God as her daughters when he gathers his people from both the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, and from the Gentiles. They will become the daughters of his wife. But they will not become the daughters of his wife because of that original covenant made at Sinai. They will become uh, the daughters of his wife because of this renewed and everlasting covenant. Verse 62, And I will establish my covenant with you. That's the everlasting covenant. And another promise, this is the third promise, you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame. So he says, I'm going to cleanse you of your sins. I'm going to make you aware of your shame and I'm going to so cleanse that shame from you that you will never again have to open your mouth because of it. And finally, the final promise of this new covenant, I will provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord God. 
a clear reference to the atoning sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. So look at those last two verses of the chapter again. I will establish my covenant with you, then you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be ashamed, and never open your mouth any more because of your shame, when I provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord God. That's the new covenant that he will make with them. They will be ashamed of their sins. He will give her her wicked sisters, Samaria and Sodom, as daughters. They will know that he is the Lord, and he will provide atonement for all that they have done. That's his grace, the grace of the new covenant. Let's turn then to Ezekiel chapter 34. Now here we have a prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. And in the context of this chapter, those shepherds are especially the kings of Israel. And God accuses these kings of Israel of wicked treatment of his flock. He says to these kings, You feed yourselves and not my flock. You do not strengthen the weak. You do not heal the sick. You do not bind up the broken. You rule them with force and with cruelty. And the result is that they are scattered and have become food for all the beasts of the field. And those beasts of the field, of course, stand in this context for the nations. Therefore, God says in verses 7 to 10 of the chapter, I'm going to bring judgment on you. And my judgment is this. First of all, I'm going to remove you from your office. And secondly, I'm going to deliver my flock from the mouths of those wild beasts who are devouring them. So that's the first 10 verses of the chapter. But then in verses 11 and following, we get the promises of the new covenant. And the first group of promises uh, relate to the shepherds themselves. They do not mention the word covenant, though we could use the word covenant in relation to them. Those promises in verse 11 to, verses 11 to 16 are, one, I myself will be the shepherd of my flock. In other words, he says, I'm going to remove you from your office and I'm going to become their shepherd directly. Secondly, I'm going to gather them from the peoples and bring them to their own land. That is, he's going to take them back from the captivity in Babylon to which he has sent them. He is going to feed them in the land, and he will do for them everything that the other shepherds had failed to do. Verse 16, I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick, but I will destroy the fat and strong and feed them in judgment. So this is the promise. These are the promises he speaks with regard to those shepherds. I will become the shepherd of my sheep. I will gather them and bring them to their land. I will feed them there in the land. I will do everything for them that you, wicked shepherds, have failed to do. In verses 17 and following, then he speaks to the flock itself. 
And here, again, we have something very interesting happening. Because as he begins to speak to his flock, the Lord makes a division within that flock. He says in verse 17, Behold, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. So he says, not only am I going to rid my flock of those evil shepherds, but I'm also going to call my flock and get rid of parts of that flock. And I'm going to get rid of parts of that flock because there are some of that flock who have eaten up the good pasture and trampled down the rest of it with their feet. Verse 18, who have drunk of the clear waters and who have fouled the rest of the waters with their feet, who have pushed with their side and their shoulder the weak among his flock, who have butted them with their horns and scattered them. So it was not just the shepherds who failed in their responsibility, but there were also those in the flock who persecuted and afflicted those others in the flock. And God says, then in verses 17 and following, I'm going to take them out of my flock. They're going to be gone from my flock. They do not really belong to my flock. And this should remind us, of course, of Matthew 25, where Jesus talks about the parable of the sheep and the goats. And he separates between the sheep and the goats, pronouncing judgment on the one and blessing on the other. Verse 23, then, God says to his people, to his flock, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. So God says, I'm going to appoint another shepherd to replace those evil shepherds. That shepherd will be David, my servant. And of course, that's a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ. He will feed them. He will be a faithful shepherd. And under his care, then, he, the Lord, will be their God. And his servant David, a prince among them. The Lord himself has spoken it. It's in verse 25, then, finally, that Ezekiel begins to speak of the new covenant. I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land, and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. So he says, I will give them safety in the land. There in the land, I will pour out blessings on them. Notice in verses 26 and 27, I will make them in the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord. When I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be a prey for the nations. In verse 28, 
He will raise up for them a garden of renown. Verse 29. They will then know that I am with them. Verse 30. Thus they shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. So he he says that the result of this new covenant will be that his people will know that he is the Lord their God and that they are his people. That is a reference to his covenant with Abraham and to the fulfillment, the typical fulfillment of that covenant with Abraham in his tabernacle set up at the time of his covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And he summarizes this all then in verse 31. You are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are my men, and I am your God, says the Lord God. So he's saying, in this new covenant, I will fulfill the promise I made to Abraham and the promise I made to Israel at Mount Sinai. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. But remember going back to chapter 16, that this new covenant embraces making uh, Sodom the daughter of his wife. This new covenant, then, is a covenant which is about Jesus. He is the David prophesied here. He is the prince whom God sets up. He is the shepherd whom God appoints to replace the old wicked shepherds. And Jesus himself, using this same figure then, talks about himself in John 10 as the good shepherd. I am, he says there, the door of the sheep, and I am the good shepherd. Verse 11, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And again in verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and have known and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And again, taking us back to other passages in the Old Testament, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Those other sheep are the Gentiles. He is going to bring them into the fold of Israel. There will be one flock and one shepherd. So he is that shepherd, then, of whom God speaks throughout Ezekiel 34. He is the new covenant of God with his people. Finally, let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. And here, we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 28. The first 14 verses of that chapter are about the um, reviving of the dry bones. But in verse 15, we have a new word of God to Ezekiel. And the first thing that God says to Ezekiel is, take two sticks and make them one, basically. 
As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself um, and write on it for Judah and the house, for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them to one another for yourself and to one stick, and they will become one in your hand. And then God says, and here's how you to interpret that um, sign to the people who ask you about it. I will take, verse 19, the stick of Judah, which is in the hand of Ephraim, uh, the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be one in your hand before their eyes. So he's saying these promises then, which I'm going to be talking about in this prophecy, are for the ten tribes as well as for the kingdom of Judah. I'm going to make them one kingdom again. And then we have the promises following. And those promises are, I will gather them from the nations. I will make them one nation, never to be divided again. I will give them one king very significant. I will give them one king. This is that shepherd of whom chapter 34 speaks. They will not defile themselves with idols anymore. Verse 23, that is, he will cleanse them of all their sins. I will be their God. Verse 23, again, fulfilling the promise to Abraham and to Israel at Mount Sinai. David will be their king. That's another reference to Christ. And they will have one shepherd, They will walk in my judgments, and they will dwell in the land forever, and David will be their prince forever. So those are the promises of this new covenant. And it would seem, of course, that this new covenant has to do with Israel and Judah. And yet the king that he talks about and the shepherd that he talks about here are the same king and shepherd he talks about in verse 34. That same king and shepherd who says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. Other sheep I have whom I must bring. There will be one fold and one shepherd. The land here is not that land of Israel any longer, the physical land of Israel, but it is the heavenly Canaan. Their walking in his judgments will be ultimately a walking in his judgments without sin and without fault forever. Because through this new shepherd, he will cleanse them so that they no longer defile themselves with idols. He will be their God and they will never again forsake him. It doesn't mean we achieve perfection between the first and second comings of Christ. What it means is that what Christ began in his first coming, he will finish and make perfect in his second coming. It's in verse 26, then, that we read again about the new covenant. And here he talks about this covenant as a covenant of peace. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. 
So again, this new covenant that he's making will be a covenant of peace and an everlasting covenant. A covenant of peace between him and his people, but a covenant of peace also between Judah and Israel and between the people of God in the Old Testament and the nations in the New Testament. He will establish and multiply them. Verse 26, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them. There's a reference to his covenant with Abraham. I will make your seed as innumerable as the stars in heaven. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. There's a reference to the covenant at Sinai, the setting up of the tabernacle. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The promise to which God comes back again and again and again in all his covenants throughout the Old Testament. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the heart of the covenant, the living, uh, gracious heart of the covenant. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the nations, not just Israel, but the nations also will know it. The nations will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. This should remind us, all of this, of that great blessing that we find at the end of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, remember the covenant of peace, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That blessing is as appropriate for us as it was for Israel. So, in conclusion, then, in these three prophecies in Ezekiel, God takes basically two common biblical metaphors. The metaphor of marriage. He is the husband and his people are the wife. And the metaphor of the shepherd, he is the shepherd and they are the sheep. And he puts those two metaphors into a covenantal context. In that covenant, he will be their husband. He will atone for them. He will make them faithful to himself. And in that covenant, he will be their shepherd. He will care for them. He will atone for them and make them keep his judgments. He will bless them abundantly in the land which he promises. And the promise that receives special emphasis throughout is, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's a promise that God repeats again in uh, chapter 39, verses 28 and 29. Though he does not use the word covenant here, Nevertheless, this is this promise of the covenant. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back to their land 
and left none of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them any more, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. There you have the promise also of the pouring out of the spirit that is also part of this new covenant. All of this is fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom of his bride, the church, and the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and takes it again so that he may give life to them. But we also, as we look at these uh, prophecies in Ezekiel, should not forget the last chapters of the prophecy of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel prophesies concerning the new sanctuary which God is going to build. And this is not that uh, temple which Ezra and others with him built after the return from captivity in Babylon. At least it's not ultimately that temple, but it is the church in the New Testament. It is God's people of every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven. Look at some of the things that God says in connection with this sanctuary. Chapter 43, verses 2 and following. Behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chebar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east." Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, they nor their kings, by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places. When they set their threshold by my threshold, and their doorpost by my doorpost. This was in the covenant at Sinai. With a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore, I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their harlotry and the carcasses of their kings from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. There's that promise again. I will be their God. And in chapter 47 as well, Verses 1 and following. He brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. And what should you think about when you think about that prophecy? You should think about Revelation chapters 21 and 22, where we see the New Jerusalem coming down and water flowing out from the temple. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces the east, and there was water running out on the right side. And then they begin to measure the water, and finally that water becomes so deep that it cannot be crossed. But when we uh, get to verse 7, we have further uh, important details. When I returned, there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other, 
What's that tree that you read about in Revelation 22, the tree of life, then for, which is food for the nations? Then he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. That is, the waters of the sea are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the rivers go, will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters go there. For they will be healed, and everything will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it from Engedi to Enegleam. They will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. So he's talking here not about the great sea. He's talking about the dead sea. The waters of this river are going to flow out from the temple. They're going to flow into the dead sea. They're going to um, heal the waters of the dead sea. Engedi is a place along the coast of the dead sea. And there will be fishermen at the sea. And those fishermen will be pulling fish out of the sea. And they will be the same kinds of fish that are found in the great sea, exceedingly many. And here, of course, you should think about Jesus' uh, words to his disciples. I will make you fishers of men. And then finally, in verses 22 and 23 of that same chapter, it shall be that you will divide it, that is the land, by lot as an inheritance for yourselves and for the strangers who dwell among you and who bear children among you. They shall be to you as native-born among the children of Israel. They shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it shall be that in whatever tribe the stranger dwells, there you shall give him his inheritance, says the Lord God. He will give to the Gentiles an inheritance in the land of Israel, to strangers and to foreigners. All of this, then, is fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sending out of his apostles and his prophets and his preachers to the gathering of his elect from the nations and to the establishment of his kingdom and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth described in Revelation 21 and 22. Ezekiel also then prophesies gloriously of the new covenant in Christ, which is a fulfillment of the old covenant but also an enrichment of it. Next time, we will be looking at the prophets uh, Daniel, Hosea, and Malachi. Each of those prophets also has something to say about this new covenant. May God bless you with his word.